Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life, and love, and all things literary. I hope everyone had a lovely long weekend. This week, we're going to revisit one of our most loved episodes of last year. It's with the incomparable Lydia Yuknovich. Since we aired the episode, we've had so much positive feedback. So if you missed it last year, I suggest taking a listen this week. We'll be back uh, June 7th, that's next Tuesday, with Jessica Valenti, who's going to talk about her new memoir, Sex Object. So tune in then and hope you guys have a great week. Today, I'd like to introduce our guest with a line from her own memoir. Some books take your breath away. Is it the books or is it the writers? When I read this, well, our guest is Lydia Yuknovich. I better say who you are before I gush. But I read this and I kind of underlined it and scribbled and starred next to it because I felt, um, I mean, this has been my connection with so many books and then the whole impulse to start this podcast was to try and get that chunk, you know, like part of the writer yeah. themselves and hope that they could impart some wisdom, you know, for me particularly and for our listeners. And I feel that through um, your books, this is what you do. So I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you. You're the author of the astounding memoir, The Chronology of Water, two books of short stories, Liberty's Excess and Her Other Mouths, and two novels, the first, Dora, A Headcase, and her most recent book, The Small Backs of Children. This remarkable book begins in the middle of an Eastern European war zone when an American photojournalist takes a startling image of a young girl at the very moment her family is killed by a bomb. Lydia, it's kind of a twist that the, the main protagonist of the story isn't this photojournalist it's actually a writer who's commissioned to write the piece that right. accompanies this picture how does this picture change the writer's life in the in the beginning of the book in some ways it's the same way it changed my life um, to look at you know, I bet we could conjure in our mind's eye photographs that are famous mm -hmm. of children from conflict zones that sort of changed the way we thought about war. Uh, the Vietnam War photo of the little girl who's running naked, who's just yes. been napalmed, comes to mind. Those photographs had such an impact on me. The green-eyed Afghani girl is mm -hmm. another one that was on the cover of National Geographic. Those photos haunt me, and they make me look at war differently, and they make me ask different questions. What happens to the children is what lodged in my brain. And so I made a series of characters who have to confront that question in one way or another, 
in the guise of this photo of a girl at, comes into more than one person's life mm-hmm. and makes a kind of, well, you said twist, but makes a kind of problem in each of their lives that they have to you know, ask different questions. Who is this girl? What happened to her? What effect does she have? And for the writer who you asked about, that's one of the characters, uh, the photo triggers a memory of her own dead daughter. And so it's kind of a haunting for the writer. For the photojournalist, it makes her famous, this photo, and Mm -hmm. radically changes her life forever. So the photo's kind of like a catalyst or a trigger for a group of artists facing questions about representation and conflict and who we are when we make things. And, I mean, so often I feel we have writers on and they want to distance themselves from their fiction. Yes. And I felt today we would throw all that away because it Good seems idea. <laughs> like you're willing to. And I told you earlier that I read your memoir at the, well, not at the same time, but straight after I'd read this book because I was so, I needed to know more about you. Mm. And I mean, is it true to say that you are the the writer in this book or a fictionalized version of her? I, yes, a fictionalized version of the one character called the writer. But I think, too, there's a way in which the author of any novel is in all the characters and mm-hmm. all the characters are in them. So you could read the novel and come away thinking these are all pieces of a single psyche, even the men. And that they're just all parts of us, pieces of us. Um, And I liked that idea, so I wanted to play with it. But there are literally biographical things from my life embedded in more than one character. Yeah. And my family history in Lithuania is sort of jumbled in there. But I'm glad you asked me about it because I'm one of the weirdos who doesn't see much of a difference between fiction and nonfiction any longer. And I've come to that conclusion from writing these two books next to each other. Um, So you can put me in that pile of weirdos. Okay, yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, not everyone is as open as you are about this. Um, In fact, people get really upset. They do, especially at parties. Oh, they do? Have you had any (laughs) run-ins? Well, there, there's an entire contingent of nonfiction writers who are pretty allegiant to the idea that it's possible to tell a stable truth and, you know, record the facts. And it's not exactly that I don't believe in facts. It's just I've spent over a decade researching what memory is mm-hmm. biologically and in terms of neuroscience. And it would be fair to say that every time you conjure a memory, you're making a fiction. You're adding composition. You're making emotional choices about what to focus on and what to pull back from. And once that idea landed in my brain, it seemed a lot like a fiction writing enterprise to reconstruct a memory. And so at this point in time, I feel like fiction and nonfiction, they speak to each other. They inform each other. And you can't actually have one without the other. But but there are many writers out there, particularly of nonfiction, who get feisty. They get... <laughs> well, because they want... they, I mean, how do you disassociate your lens of the world from any sentence you write? Exactly. Really? 
Exactly. I mean, you can you can try, you can do your utmost to, but even the way, you know, you're yes. deciding to put and in front of... Yes, the second you, know, you enter language. You're absolutely right. I agree with you entirely. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> There's all, I mean, this also makes me jump to another... I'm just trying to find the quote, but it's about photography and image and memory and I almost how now that the power of photos to kind of supersede memory. Right. There are those, some photographers and some theoretical-minded art people who think that's happened, that photographs and representations have sort of come to replace what is real or what happened because we rely on them so heavily. You know, when 9-11 happened, if you didn't live here, or even if you did, you turned on your television to see what was going on. Some people, especially on our coast, the Mm -hmm. West Coast, that was our access. And sometimes the images become bigger than whatever the reality is they're meant to represent. And it's an idea I was playing with in the book, too. What is the power of an image besides just looking at it? How does it make us and how does it change our reality, which is kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And also then, who is responsible for taking action? Like, Or yes. is there an action that one must take if you're involved in a war? Or you, I mean, in this book, the photographer takes the picture. She actually doesn't do anything about this girl. Right. And that is really what plagues the writer who's back in America. Right feeling impotent about this this young woman and everyone's responsibility in it is is different yeah I, I really I wanted to raise a novel question uh, with these characters you know who's responsible for what but I think it's a good question to ask American artists right now you know what are we making and for what reason and with what outcome and I, I have done heavy research on some of the photographers who've taken the photos we mentioned earlier. Mm. And, you know, one of them, Kevin Carter, who took the famous photo of a little Sudanese child who's all hunched over on the ground and clearly starving to death. And also in the photo is a vulture kind of staring mm. at it. And, and the immediate impact you get is this is death and the vulture's just waiting. And... Um, He was haunted by some of the photos he took enough so that he ended up killing himself. And his story got into my idea for this book because that's a remarkable kind of question. You know, you take the photo, you walk away from the child, and who are we when we do that? You know, and you shoot your photo, and the child what, a day later isn't there anymore. I, I'm interested in those questions. I don't have perfect answers. answers. Now, I'd love to, the book is so much, and your memoirs about the body. And this is, it comes up and up, and this idea of life and death kind of inextricably linked. Um, even when I was on your website and I thought, you know, how do I introduce Lydia? Because just saying where she's written, like, the Virginia Review sounds so strange <laughs> and silly compared to kind of the impact of the, the, the book has had on me. But one thing that I found really confronting is that the first line in your About page says, in 1986, my daughter died the day she was born, mm-hmm. and from her I became a writer. Mm. 
How, how so? Well, I think like a lot of people, I don't feel alone in this. Mm. The, uh, grief was a literal place I traveled to that was different from my regular life. And it not only grief, but for whatever reasons, confronted with the situation of my daughter dying the day she was born, I also, I moved a little bit towards psychosis. I lost some of my marbles for a while. And um, in retrospect, I can say very firmly that it felt like I left one reality and entered another. And this sort of grief and, and psychosis place was like roaming around in a world, uh, kind of like a dream, mm. kind of like things change in dreams. But I experienced it as being physically present in another place. So I've tried to write about that more than once. And I meet other people who've been to these territories of grief or pain is another. I think joy is another. It's just these were my experiences. Um, and because I'm a writer and also a visual artist, I wanted to give shape and image and form to what it felt like that I went to those places. And storytelling is one of the best ways you can do that because you can make a setting out of this place you feel like you went. And so that, that's what I was up to, and that's why I said that. And it's also a way in which I took this very sad, terrible thing that happened to me and turned it into something beautiful by asking questions about this girl that I lost. What else is in there besides pain? Well, turns out she has a lot of things in there besides my sadness and pain. She can generate art and story. And the more I write about that, the more people I meet who, they may not say it exactly the way I do, but um, they know what I'm talking about that these are places we go in life and you come, if you come back, and not everybody does, but if you come back, you bring something with you. And it's an ability to share experience with others and tell stories and look somebody in the eye and say, you're not alone. Mm. That, you know, it feels like you might be alone, but we're here too. There's a whole tribe of us. We walk amongst you <laughs> and we help each other. Which sounds a little woo-woo, but... No, but it felt it feels like reading your book that when you meet someone almost who's been through something similar, there is a connection between you. I think so. And it's like a vibration or something. A little or... bit. I think of it as energy, too, but mm. I'm from the West Coast, so I have to be careful about talking <laughs> about energy. But I do. I yeah. feel I can walk into a room and feel this vibration stuff you're talking about, and I can usually find the people who have some form of extreme experience, I guess is a general way to put it. Yeah. And also, who gets out of life without some form of extreme experience? I mean, it's coming for everyone eventually in some form. So it is kind of what binds us anyway. From reading your work, it feels like you've been on several journeys in and out of this... Um or traumatic places. Yes. And in your memoir, there's a part where you talk about your second husband and the draw to this type of uh, bad boy type. Apparently, I'm not alone in that. that re oh, really? <laughs> I know, I read that, and that was another way. circle. <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, but you said, I hadn't, you know, I was drawn to him because he made me laugh, and I hadn't right. laughed since I was 10 years old. Right. 
What was your childhood like? Well, boy, I could answer that question many different ways, but but one way I can answer it, it felt like a conflict zone, mm. and it felt like an incarceration zone, and I'm coming. I'm coming to those statements as a 52-year-old person. I don't think I could have said those sentences in my 20s, but through the process of making art and writing and talking to other people and working with people in rehab or people just out of jail or, you know, recovering junkies or single abused moms, I found out that these early experiences, if you come from an abuse place or a poverty place or, a, you know, not the mainstream place, um, they're kind of they're kind of like war zones. They're kind of like conflict-heavy, crazy-making, again, environments. And so you have several choices. If you survive, which isn't all of us, I keep having to say that, you know, not everybody makes it out, it's, a, it's an open question. What do you do with what happened to you? And so do you just carry that trauma and pain around with you your whole life? Or is there a way, this is my eternal question, is there a way to compost it and turn it into something useful? I mean, all I ever wanted, I think of the chronology of water as an anti-memoir because I broke every memoir rule there is. (laughs) Um, Maybe that's why it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) But all I ever wanted with that book, to be honest with you, is that it would be useful in someone else's hands besides just mine. And if that turned out to be two people, that was going to be enough for me. Because I knew if one less person killed themselves tomorrow, then it was worth writing this book where I sort of laid bare a bunch of things that were hard (laughs) to say in front of other people. I think you said that when you're in a road gang, you had never (laughs) felt less like a woman. What was that about? Well, I was the only woman on the particular road crew I was on, so literally it was true. But no one treated me as a sexual object. We all had those stupid orange day glow vests, and we all had blisters from using the tools, and we were all starving by lunchtime, and we had to eat these crappy lunches, (laughs) state-sponsored lunches. And it sort of democratized us as workers. And I imagine, you know, this is an experience other kinds of workers feel, that you're no longer, you know, I wasn't my blonde hair and my boobs and my moving around the world as a woman. I was a worker with fellow comrades, and we bonded so much differently than Mm. anywhere else in my regular life that I'm never going to... I still love those people I met. <laughs> and when we're, we talk... My husband and I talk about this. When you're driving around and you see a cleanup crew and you see the little paddy wagon somewhere near them, um, I always feel... You know, I want to do some kind of sign. <laughs> some kind of comrade sign. sign. Like, I feel it in my whole body. I, I, I have kin there. It feels like a kindredness that I'll never forget. I think that's so interesting what you said about you not having a sexuality in that space because as a woman and as reading your book, I was deeply moved and 
oh, like, I just, there was a certain point in the book where you're with your professor, um, Ken, Ken Kesey, and, you know, the men in your life had, well, you'd been sexualized. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you'd been part of it, too, yes. enjoying it. Yes. And I totally um, identified with that. But then there's a moment where he asks you, you know, what is the best thing that's ever happened in your life? And you have this moment where you think, oh, here is what happens to a woman like me, like right. a blonde, you know, attractive woman. I am going to fuck my professor because that's, that's the story. That's the story. And that broke my heart. But I, I, but I identified with yes. it. I was like, this is what happens now. Um, I haven't been in that exact situation, but it, it doesn't matter. It's a it's familiar like, story. Give me like the world of men and yep. like that or something that you didn't think was sexualized in a moment or a gesture is, and you go, this is happening again. Yes. Like I'm not just a human with something to say. Yes. And the best bit, like the relief in the fact that this kind man just wants to know what you're going to do with your life Um I mean, I was just so relieved for you. I, I'm so glad that part resonates. Uh-oh, we're both going to start crying. <laughs> I'm so glad that part resonates for you because it was such a huge moment that this, you know, quote-unquote famous man treated me a little bit like a good father, which I had never had mm. and didn't know how to recognize, to be honest with you. And it lurched me out of this script you're talking about, this story that if you are a woman in America, almost almost any woman, you're going to run into that story somewhere in some version. And we make our choices, right? We decide when to put a foot in toward it. Or maybe we don't even have that decision. Maybe we just get whisked away. And that moment for me where he wanted to know what was inside me, like hopes and dream-wise, and if I wanted to be a writer had never occurred to me. I certainly hadn't been asked ever by anyone. And all I had used to get through my life was my body. Mm-hmm. And so it was a pivotal moment for me. This other Lydia got born who might have some worth that wasn't, as you say, the sexualized script, the story where you move in with your body and then you can move around in the world. Uh, and a lot of women, and some men, <laughs> have have told me that resonates for them, too. I think we know about it, but we're not sure what to do about it still. Um, and so I'm happy to keep raising those questions mm-hmm. so we can at least wrestle with them. Because i got to believe there's some better choices <laughs> and some better <laughs> stories Absolutely. available. You know, I have a son. I'm worried about him, too. The stories coming toward him about who he should be and why horrify me. Well, and this idea of scripts, yeah. you, you talk about quite a lot, This all the roles we have to play, like whether it's daughter, mother, husband, wife, and like who's telling us and why, exactly. but we feel, I feel 
all the pressure to be something. Right. And I'm now, I'm like, who am I as a 34-year-old if I'm not someone's girlfriend, right. someone's mother? Right. I mean, I'm someone's daughter. And, but it's really the other two. I'm like, am I just, a, like, where am I in this void? Yeah. And I'm like, I am a someone. Yes. <laughs> but it's like trying to work out who that is then. And, and swimming upriver entirely, you know, against the current of a culture that will name you really easily. And to stand up and say, well, what if I'm not that? Am I anything? Am I nothing? It's actually a, a really emotional question for me. Just listening to you, I'm getting worked up. I know, I am for myself. And and then I see, then I, that's why I think I'm so thrilled to have you here because we need women who are, who are writing different narratives for us. We do. If you're out there, please hurry. I keep posting <laughs> on my Facebook page, if you make art of any kind, will you please start making some more radicalized art because it, there's a crisis <laughs> of identity. There's a crisis of identity happening to us as there are all kind of crises around us. Our planet's going to hell, too. <laughs> we make war everywhere we exist. But there's an identity crisis that if we don't figure out these new stories, these new myths, um, we're doomed. Part of the reason I didn't give any of the characters in The Small Backs of Children a name, for the most part, has to do with what you're talking about, these roles and how we become them, mm. and then how they also wreck us at some point, because we have to grapple with the questions you raised. But readers who come to the book will see there are no characters with proper names, and that's frustrating, I know, but I did it on purpose <laughs> to wrestle with that identity question. Are we what we do? Are we the roles we fill? To what extent? Who are we aside from that? It's an important question. Yeah. Do you think that trauma makes us better people or not? I have, you know, that phrase, suffering makes you stronger. Yeah. It's kind of, I know. You went, ugh, so do I. Um, so th this might get me into trouble, so you don't have to put it in here if you don't want to. But so that suffering makes you stronger thing is a Judeo Christian motif. And it's the Christian part that's hard for me because it taps into the idea that there will be a kind of suffering that makes you stronger and you will transcend the mortal coils and become more heavenly if you endure this suffering. And there are all kind of Bible stories about suffering. I am not down with that idea. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody gets out of life without suffering, but I think the lessons to be learned from it aren't the Christian ones from my point of view. The lessons we learn from it have more to do with a, a lateral way we can ask, how do we help each other get through this? How do we help each other make a good, do good work and make a good planet? And, you know, can suffering yield an experiential truth that um, instead of looking up toward heaven to get out of your mortal situation, can suffering show us how to hold hands better or build houses for people who don't have them? Or be more present in, yes, our, more, in our lives yes. with the people we have. Yes. And so compassion and empathy, 
those seem like really important things to learn from suffering or how to go down to the dark place and bring something worthwhile back with you. There's a great poem by Adrian Rich called Diving into the Wreck. And it's about this woman speaker who dives down to a shipwreck at the bottom of the ocean, but she brings useful things back up to the surface. I think that's, that's what to learn about suffering rather than the transcendent angel message. That version of it. (laughs) I guess to switch tacks a little, we have to talk about sex because it's everywhere (laughs) in all these in your books. I'm not sorry. (laughs) No, don't be. It's, I, I loved, I loved it in all of its forms. I felt like it was opening up to me. And I think there's somewhere you say that, you know, you had this moment where you realize sex is so expansive. Yes. Versus narrow. Yes. And your experiences have been expansive. You were with women for many years and men and your characters. You've been, I was really, there's a point, um, I'm really interested in S&M as a place where people go to transform their pain. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there was a passage where you talk about uh, it's a cleansing. It's almost using the pain that you might have had in your in your life and transforming it in a way that right. cleanses you. I could you explain that a little more because I did when I read it I just I instantly understood it. Right. And I think that that's sometimes when you've maybe not experienced though that culture you have all these I you know we have ideas about it. Right. The unknown. But when I read that, I thought, oh, <laughs> right. I can understand that. Yeah. Well, it's important to note that in the SM community, it's not homogeneous. There are a million different ways to experience that community. And, for example, we could have a conversation strictly about kink, and that would be a valid and important conversation to have. But it would be completely different than talking about Uh, those of us who participated in the community and experienced cleansing rituals. Mm -hmm. Not everybody in that community is down with that idea or experienced it. And a whole other conversation we could have would just be, how is their pleasure in pain without talking about any kind of helpfulness or cleansing rituals? Um, and that's an important We could have all of too. those conversations. <laughs> I have time. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yes. So so my, my stepping into the stream of it or swimming into the stream of it, I took my particular pathway through it, but it was a vast array of different people with different experiences there for different reasons. Mm. I just want to get that up front. What was important about my personal experiences, I didn't realize I would respond the way I did. And it was immediate. It happened the very first time. And what I didn't realize is that I was carrying my pain around with me like a like a third boob or another arm or, you know, like a body part. And that that wasn't good. And that for whatever reasons, maybe because I was raised in an abusive household, maybe other reasons, it helped me to feel less numb. 
in my regular life experiences. To be able to feel something all the way through my body uh, was radically meaningful to me. And I also, I just happened to have a kind of high pain tolerance. And that's just random genetics. I don't know why. So my willingness is probably a different category than somebody who, if you pinch them, you know, it's like, ah, yeah, run away. Uh, and so it made me curious. And what was that experience like? Or what did it look like? Uh, so, so if I say it's an altered state, most people can conjure up what that means Mm. for them so emotionally and psychologically it's like an altered state like being high or something or adrenaline or something but what was more important to me is this thing I was trying to talk about I could feel my body all the way through and having come from experiences where you feel disembodied and you're not really attached to your body or not fully present in your body to feel every piece of your own skin suddenly was revolutionary for me. It's like, oh, I actually have a body, <laughs> and it's a big deal. And, you know, it was, I think it's sort of like a conversion experience, but I think, God, people get angry with me when I talk about SM as a conversion experience. But that's how I experienced it. That's the correct language for what happened to me. Well, that that sounds like a grounding experience. Very much so. It was the first time I felt fully in my body, fully able to feel the literal ground under my feet, and it made me want to open myself up, which you said earlier. I felt an expansiveness. I felt felt like Walt Whitman. I felt like suddenly my body could (laughs) sing, you know, and, and electrify in relation to other bodies whether or not I stayed in the SM community. Mm. Your experience, than the way you've described it now, makes total sense to me. And it also makes me think that once you take away with sex the shoulds and shouldn'ts mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. The, the who you do it with and who you don't do it with and how you do it and how you don't do it and the way they do it, you know, all yeah. of that... It just allows for whatever to happen to happen. Yeah. Um, which I'm imagining is the most thrilling, freeing experience. Very. I don't think everyone would agree with that, but very. And in some ways, I mean, sometimes I wonder if men and women, all of us, are throwing each other at each other's bodies looking for something like a conversion experience. I mean, when I was a promiscuous teen sexually active young woman, I, I think I wrote this phrase somewhere, I was using my body like a, bo- a battering ram to feel something as opposed to nothing. And, you know, maybe partly we're, we're all doing a version of that, and, and that's just the extreme on a spectrum. But the things we're talking about, I do think everybody feels them. I don't think... It's a hard thing to understand yeah. once you just start talking about it, you know. And it's just some people gravitate towards one type of experience and other people, you know, drive race cars or, you know, right. do okay. other kinds of forms. Because I think, I mean, an orgasm really is an oblivion. Yes. And it is 
the moment where you feel the most alive and connected to you can like the entirety of humanity yes. and life it's like a life force yes. that is that, i mean i'm that's why i think after funerals people just want to go and have sex and experience this as soon feeling, as possible <laughs> as soon as because it's a reminder that there is Yes. A, a life force of some kind. I absolutely secular amen to that. I, I, it's like the life yes, death. Yes, I was just going to say that. It's like being lost and found at the same time. It's like the life-death interstice or space. And it's another one of these liminal spaces that I am trying to give setting to where you lose yourself, but you find your connection to the you know cosmos even. <laughs> Um, and orgasm is a space of that. A lot of French writers have written eloquently and without shame about, you know, they ca- they have that, le petit mort is the phrase, the little death oh, yes. for orgasm. Oh, yes, that every time. So they, they were way ahead of us in terms of, you know, exploring that space philosophically and physically. But I'm with you. Orgasm is one of those spaces. I'm like, let's all try it. <laughs> Ready, go. <laughs> you love artists and you are one. How does, d- can you live your life without art? No. I mean, I'm, the, I'm an age where I can answer that question quickly. No, I can't. And in addition to finding the sort of um, self-expression as, as life force, I... It, it also took um, having another life pass through me when the first life that passed through me died. Um, so what I mean literally is having my son and meeting the guy sitting over there on the couch mm-hmm. whose name is Andy Mingo. I'm not sure any of this would have happened had I not crossed his path and had we not reinvented ourselves from the sort of rubble of both of our pasts and found a, a kind of energy in making your life and household and relationships into self-expression. Uh, I feel pretty lucky having met this person, that, especially with my track record of <laughs> my selections before <laughs> that were, you know, catastrophic. And this writing is coming out of me in part because I was further opened by the thing I wanted least in my life, which was relationship. I mean, the first time Andy asked me about having a kid, I said, nope, no, go away from me, get out, not going to do it, not going there again. And it, you know, the opening that happened from this person being persistent about how love or uh, relationship or husband-wife thing could be another portal to self-expression. That was another moment of revelation for me. It blew my mind because I thought we all just got together to have sex and, you know, make bad relationships until they fell apart and then do something else. (laughs) But this thing where you could spend your life, and I include my son in this because he's becoming an artist as well, not with us telling him he's an artist, but this is a life choice he's making. We're making art like that's what you do with a life. 
No, I definitely felt that I've been, you know, waiting. Like just what you said about we have relationships and it, sometimes I get to a point where I think, is this it? Yeah, like, like is that all? And I have had the other where it's kind of a complete meeting of the minds right. that feels like together it it you are making art. Right. Like you are, the point is to share and talk about these kind of third-party things that are more than the two of you. Right. And that, yeah, sometimes you go so far in between or maybe it ev- it only happens that once and that would be okay too. Yeah. Um, I just, did you read Patty Smith's memoir? Yes, just I did. Kids? I cried my eyes out. Me too. And I thought, I mean, she had a whole other life after Robert Maplethorpe and I thought how unconventional their story was. Right. But I thought, why, like, would you not have the relationship and the art and the kind of fusing of kind of ideas. Right. But maybe, you know, and then I think we get greedy and we think you want it all the time, but it's that isn't necessarily the story or what we deserve. Like we don't really deserve anything much. (laughs) I think that's, that's another very American thing, which I find is everywhere now but oh i agree like you. you did this you deserve a cupcake exactly. or like at work oh here's your prize you deserve this and i'm like who deserves anything you're a winner <laughs> you know i do work but you know so i'm like sometimes i you know or even when i'm texting with a friend who's been through a relationship i'm like you deserve a great person next and i kind of sit and i go oh what god <laughs> what does that even actually mean? no one deserves it it would be lovely sure. for you i wish that for you i wish it for myself but Yikes, like I don't know. But then I sometimes kind of the deadening starts to happen and I think, like, I where is this person that's gonna wake me up again? I know, and then you slip back into that idiotic story of, well, the Prince Charming or Princess Special, they're out there for me, my my one and only, and that's an idiotic storytelling as well. Fiasco so it's too, kind of right? A... I think I think underneath the Will I find my one and only? And underneath the, well, we can have a house and a car and a kid and money. Underneath those stories, there's another story. And I'm going to use a word you used earlier. Can you be present all the way with somebody else? And maybe that's your life partner and maybe that's just a friend or maybe that's a kid. And maybe it kind of doesn't matter who it's with. If we could learn to be fully present in our bodies and emotions and souls and whatever else we got cooked up in there, that wouldn't that be something? I mean, maybe that's the story to hunt for and not, it must be because I'm starting to cry, <laughs> and not these other stories we've been fed that we fail at every day of our lives. Even present to yourself would be a decent relationship. Mm. I have trouble with that one, so... Well, yeah, and it's like how I started, I don't know, many years to try to notice when I'm happy or notice when I'm present. And, and I, you know, and it's almost like the thing they do and like trying to choose a career or something. But it wasn't even that. It was like, who am I? Like, when am I most, when do I feel most like myself? Yeah, it's a hard and question. <laughs> it is. Sadly, but you kind of pinpoint it, and often it's 
yeah, it's alone or with some, I know I'm just thinking it's often with incredible women when we're just having these conversations. Like to me, I'm like, this is, this is it. This is, (laughs) this is amazing. It is amazing. So it's kind of taking this and going like, maybe you don't need more right now. Maybe not. Like, this is absolutely enough for me. (laughs) Uh, I know exactly what you mean. And, I mean, that's... I I think it's so rare to find books that... Oh, I'm going to (laughs) cry. Where, like, you read them and you kind of... Like, you find these sentences that seem like they're giving you some wisdom to, like, the world and life. And... They were just, your books are riddled with them. Like, I don't know how they keep coming. <laughs> I, all I can say, now that we're both crying again, is I, I will spend the rest of my life working as hard as I can to find the sentences that are the place where I can meet someone like you for a few seconds. And we both know we went somewhere and that we felt present. Yeah. I, it's my job in life to hunt for the sentences to meet you. Thank you. I guess thank you so much for being here. I'm like so happy. Thank you, Lydia. I can assure you the pleasure is mine. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.